You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm going to do a little sciencey solo cast today. Uh, we'll take a break from the guests uh, for this one. But I was having a conversation with John Flagg uh, recently. He was just coming back from doing the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification Seminar. And he was explaining, you know, I asked him how the seminar went and he was saying, you know, it went great. People seem to be really interested in the attractors. And we started discussing what attractors are. And I think, you know, people are so curious about this because, you know, I think if we can understand what attractors are, we could understand human movement. And I think this is misguided. Um, our job as coaches is not to understand the complexity of things. It's to be able to guide our lifters through the process of complexity. Uh, we're kind of navigating the process where we understand that it's in open complex system it's non-linear there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into our predictions and i think people want to understand what attractor states are because it sounds like they're a solution to a problem like oh this is this person's attractor state if we do this we can bump them over to this attractor state and i don't think it's quite as simple as that as all organisms are going to have multiple attractors within within the actual organism that are both physical and psychological in nature um, so to get started, I'm going to give a definition of what attractors are from Dynamics of Skill Acquisition, a Constraints-Led Approach. Uh, the authors are Keith Davids, Chris Button, and Simon Bennett. And uh, let me find the, the spot here. Okay. So the stable and functional patterns of organization exhibited by open systems are called attractors. For example, in a physical system formed by billions of molecules of water in a stream, an attractor is a stable region of system state space where the resulting force vector, that is the direction and magnitude of any interacting forces on system flow, converge to a minimum. Uh, the example that they give here is in a vortex. This situation results in a stable state of organization for any system suggesting that a large perturbing force will be required to destabilize the particular order of the system at that time. In neurobiological systems, attractors represent coordination tendencies among system components and are roughly synonymous with functional coordination patterns in the repertoire of a movement system. A good example of coordination tendencies is locomotion in humans when a runner's leg coordinates into an anti-phase pattern. When one leg is in the stance phase supporting the body, the other leg is in flight phase, allowing gravity to accelerate the runner's center of mass in a series of controlled falls. So... Basically, walking and running is a attractor state for human systems in their ability to walk and run, to move. Um, I think as coaches, we try to take this and take it a step further and be like, well, under heavier weights, if somebody's squatting and the chest is falling on the way up in a squat, that that's their preferred attractor state. Um, you know, in the definition that Keith David's and Chris Button and Simon Bennett gave, they at no point laid out a perfect means of doing that. So 
the attractor stayed in a squat. Now, this is my opinion and let, in my understanding of things. And let me get something straight here. There are physicists who literally devote their entire lives to trying to understand these concepts that will die not understanding these concepts. So there is no way that someone like me, who is a powerlifting coach, is going to truly understand these concepts and understand them well enough to have all of the right answers. I think part of this is, again, is understanding that there's just a ton of uncertainty in this. So the attractor state for a human to squat would basically be to keep their feet stationary. They're going to, you know, bend their knees, flex their hips. You know, if you just break down the biological movement, the biomechanical movement like that, I think that's the attractor state. I also think if we look at attractors and, you know, to make things, I'm not going to get into detail on this, but to make things just a little bit more confusing, there are different kinds of attractors. Um, there are limit cycle attractors, there are fixed points, there are strange attractors, there are non-strange attractors, there are strange attractors that are chaotic in behavior, and there are strange attractors that are not chaotic in behavior. Um, so I think understanding that there's all different types of attractors, that this is extremely complex math, and that we really do not understand how complex systems work, that this math basically at times it just gives us, trends is a bad word, but you might see how, how sensitive something is to initial conditions on a given time, and you, you plug in all these different data points, you might get these different shapes. Um, you know, like fractals, for one. You might get, you know, a pendulum swing might show a different type of parabola on a, on a graph out, on a graph when it's actually, you know, all the math is done out and stuff. Um, so this is extremely complex, and I think understanding that is um, extremely important. So there's multiple attractor states within the within the human body, and they're probably always adjusting, right? So there's probably more of a range than there is a actual fixed point. Um, I think the best way to understand this, so if we're an open, complex system, one of the things that I've really been digging into a lot lately is complex theory. So this is basically a theory on how complex systems operate. And when you look at complex systems, they all tend to show this power law relationship. So this would be an example of an attractor. Uh, you plot a bunch of spots on a map and when you lay it out, you can actually see this relationship where small avalanches and large avalanches happen in a relationship with one another. So small ones are more, and I'll get into what avalanches are in a second, but small ones are more prone to occur, but they're proportionally related to larger ones. So this, the there was a physicist, his name is Perbach. P-E-R is the first name, B-A-K is the second name. So he did a experiment using a sand pile like just like you would get at the beach so what he did was is he would drop a grain of sand on it one at a time over a period of time and just kind of watch how it reacted so it would build it would build it would build and it would get to this point where it could not build anymore this is called a critical state 
once the sand pile would hit that critical state, you would drop another sand grain on it and there would be an avalanche. So when this avalanche occurs, this is known as a phase transition. So let's say, let's say the sand pile, just for simple math, it's six inches tall, right? Just so you guys can visualize how this happens. So you're dropping sand grains down, sand grains down, sand grains down. It builds up to six inches. This is the critical state. So now when we drop more sand grains on it, we're going to get a phase transition and an avalanche is going to occur. So we drop a sand grain on it. We get a small avalanche this time. So the sand pile drops from six inches. Let's say it drops down to five inches. So now it's going to be at a state of stasis where we're going to continue to add sand grains back into it. And nothing, we're not going to get another avalanche until it reaches that critical state again. So let's say we're dropping sand grains on it. It's up to five and a half inches. We keep dropping. It gets up to six inches. We're back at that critical state. So now we're going to, we're on the brink. This is actually known in complex theory as the edge. It could be known as the edge of chaos, depending on the circumstance. So we drop one more grain of sand on there. Now this time we get a large avalanche. So now it drops from being six inches tall, let's say it drops down to three inches tall, All right? It just took a lot with it. We'll call it a, a large avalanche. So now we're gonna be in a period of stasis, probably even longer this time as it builds as it builds back up. This is kind of what you see with like earthquakes is you'll have a lot of small ones, a large one, and then there tends to be a longer period of um, what we'll call stasis. So with the human body, when we look at this, um, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give another example uh, because I think a real world example can help uh, people understand this a little bit better. If we look at 2D computer mass extinction extinction models, these two dimensional computer models. So basically, what they do is they the one that I read about they took a thousand species and they gave them all they assigned them all random values and these values were their fitness. On the right of each species was a predator, on the left was a prey. So the random selected values were given to each of them and they just kind of ran through this, ran through this model. What would occur is over time, is eventually it would just, all these values, they, they would change, change a bit. And the system would get to a, a frozen state, this, this point of stasis where nothing else was going to happen. It's kind of just stuck. So that when that would happen, what the researchers would do is they would remove the least fit species and then put a species in there assigning a value at baseline, above baseline, but something that was higher than the one that they're removing. And then they would run the system again. And what they saw was there was no difference between small and large events. So there were pseudo extinctions and mass extinctions, but based off of the random values that they were assigning to each species, there wasn't a difference between what was causing small and large ones. So when we think of this and we compare it into a larger framework for what we're trying to do with our lifters in the gym, I think you know, we have to take some things into consideration. So if all complex systems behave this, this way, where small and large avalanches or events or whatever we want to call them, if they are caused by the same things, whether you hit a five pound PR, a 10 pound PR or a 50 pound PR on a lift is 
irrelevant. It's just it's a it's a matter of how these nonlinear, complex, dynamical systems work. Um, but it will always follow this power law relationship. So even though that it's proportionate, we can't really, we don't really understand it. Okay. So I would imagine that you would see a similar thing occur. So if we took, let's say we took that 2D computational model and we put everything that we know that positively and negatively affects training in this model instead of species and we assign them random numerical values. We could put whatever values you wanted on there, but random numerical values. And we just ran this time and time again with random values about past experiences, training, uh, perceptions, uh, muscle mass, energy levels, sleep, you name it, you put it into this, you assign it a value and just let things run its course and kind of see how it all plays out. I, I think you would find that strength would follow this same exact power law relationship and which one's more, more important out of all of those loops is, is not necessarily um, easy to identify. It's more of an interaction you know, that ecological dynamics, right? Like inside of the body, the body is its own complex ecosystem. And all of those pieces come together to form an environment and how they interact with each other and how, and you know, that's just a smaller piece of a larger environment and how they interact in a larger environment being their gym community and even the people they come into contact with on a day-to-day -day basis. All of these things are going to affect the outcomes, right? So this is, you know, the complexity of biology is far outside of our understanding of knowledge. Um, you know, I've, I've, like weather forecasting, we kind of understand how all those pieces come together and form the weather. And we have a lot of data points that get proven to be correct or incorrect on a day-to-day -day basis. So over time, your probabilistic, the probability of your forecasts is actually pretty good. Um, it doesn't really quite work the same way here. Uh, with a sport like powerlifting. We don't have these supercomputers that are analyzing each lifter's initial conditions on each given day before they enter the gym, after they enter the gym, and then comparing it to their actual statistical model and then putting that data back into it. We try to do it with these very basic, you know, volumes, intensities, uh, estimated one rep, one rep max. We have these, you know, certain pieces that we attempt uh, to put together and try to understand those and try to make decent forecasts, but they're so crude in, in nature. Your Excel spreadsheet for a sport like this is just, it's not gonna be enough. Um, I think what it does is it creates this, it's what's known as overfitting. You get this increased confidence in your model and you use your data and you end up overfitting it. So a lot of the noise becomes part of the data and part of your decision-making process instead of just the signals. And that's a problem when we get into complex uh, systems is once you're overconfident, you're just, you're almost just as good, if not better off, just going with the flow of things and making day-to-day uh, -day adjustments. And, uh, 
this researcher, I think his first name is Philip, uh, last name is Tetlock, out of the University of California, Berkeley, did a uh, research study where I think it was on political experts, and he pulled their predictions on what was going to happen in, um, in elections. And basically, so to use the quotes that he used in this research, he said that... The experts were about as good at predicting political outcomes as chimpanzees are at throwing darts. So basically, they were not very good at all. And in this model, it showed that the more information that somebody had, the worse off that they tended to be. And I think it's for that reason is you get this overfitting model. You get overconfidence in your data and your understanding of these complex systems in which we don't have an understanding of. So in something like biology, we don't know where life came from. Um, and not understanding those concepts, it makes it very hard to try to fit a crude model, a crude mathematical linear model to predict outcomes. Now, it's not like these things don't work, right? We know that well, actually, like periodization, when you look at the research, once you control for volume and specificity, it doesn't really matter um, whether it's periodized or not. So you get a lot of people who do run periodized programs who see results, right? And why they see results is a completely different um, topic. But we know that those models do work some of the time. They just, they don't work a lot of the time as well. And I'm not sure what the actual rate of success would be for these. Um, and I'm not here to argue periodization or non-periodization. Or I think you need to have a plan, but I like the dynamic systems theory constraints-led approach because it's a framework that views the individual as an open complex system, views the individual and how it interacts with its environment as an open complex system. Um, and then, of course, we manipulate the task within that environment and for that individual to try to yield outcomes. So I, I like how it takes all of those things into consideration and it understands nonlinearity of things. And um, it just it's a good it's a good framework for those things. Now, getting back to the attractor states. You know, I think we look at them and it's like, well, this is what their technique looks like and this is what their one max looks like. And what we want to do is we want to encourage a transition from this attractor state to that attractor state. Um, I don't necessarily think the language is wrong. I just think it's extremely incomplete and without a true understanding of the philosophical framework of a dynamic systems theory, I think this loses a lot of understanding. Um, because nobody really understands how attractor states work. That's kind of the, the piece of a chaotic or a complex system. And I actually, and this is my theory, is that you get, we talk a lot about self-organization. Well, I think strength and skill acquisition are calibrated self-organization pieces. So if biological, if complex biological systems follow this power law relationship, there's going to be small avalanches, there's going to be large avalanches, and they're going to be proportionate to one another. And on this scale, you're going to see an overall upward trend, but it's not always going to be up. 
right? So you're going to go through periods of time where your estimated one rep max actually decreases by a small amount, might decrease by a moderate amount, might increase by a small amount, might increase by a moderate amount. You might have these large jumps. Um, so, you know, in a dynamic systems theory, and I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, we have skips, jumps, regressions, progressions, um, and all of this happens in both directions, right? So if we're graphing this out, instead of zeroing the graph, and that's where the power law relationship starts, it probably gets into the negative numbers. And maybe zero's in the middle somewhere, but you'll have an overall upward trend over time. So because of this power law relationship, so let's look at something like earthquakes. We're pretty good at understanding how often earthquakes occur. So let's say I'm trying to remember these actual statistics, but it could be completely off. I think it was San Francisco is um, the forecast, not the forecasting, but the how often a earthquake occurs in San Francisco is like once in every 35 years or something. Um, so let's say, but that doesn't mean that every 35th year that there's an earthquake. So even though we understand how often these things occur, we are completely incapable of predicting when and what scale that earthquake is actually going to be. But over time, that trend seems to work out pretty good once in every 35 years. But they could have one this year, they could have one next year, and then not one for 68 years. They could have one this year, and they could have one 69 years from now, and it's still fitting that same frequency. But geologists cannot predict when earthquakes are going to occur. And as far as I understand it, I think the problem is, is we just don't understand what really causes earthquakes. We know that there's stress that builds up in tectonic plates and that eventually the stress becomes too much and we get some shifting that occurs and earthquake happens. But we don't understand why this stress builds up. But this gets back to that sand pile model too, right? So stress is constantly building up in, the, in those fault lines until it reaches a critical state and then we have an earthquake. However, the fault line is connected throughout the entire earth. And it's probably not, you know, we try to reduce everything in science. So you get geologists just looking at the fault lines, right? And trying to understand why stress builds up and they might even narrow it down to specific areas. But the fault lines, you know, are probably part of a larger ecosystem that landslides play a role, volcanic eruptions play a role, human life plays a role, atmospheric pressure plays a role. All of these other environmental constraints probably play a role on, on earthquakes just at a much larger scale than if you're looking at an individual human being. You know, So I think in a lot of cases we try to reduce things down so much to the individual the individual that we lose sight that this individual is part of a much larger whole. Like not only of themselves, like their physical and psychological whole, but also of their environment. So they're part of a gym culture. They're part of a work culture. They have families. And all of these aspects are going to contribute to how those feedback loops that uh, positively and negatively affect training. It, you know, if we're running a computational model on this and we take all of those aspects in their life into consideration, it's going to affect the values of all of them. Uh, you know, like for example, if somebody has a really stressful job and home life, they're 
probably not going to be able to handle as high of a stress in the gym as somebody who doesn't have any responsibilities, lives at home, has a good work life type of thing. They're they're going to have maybe less wiggle room there. And like this is a commonly accepted theme, but I also think the human body is amazingly adaptable and that stress for either one of those becomes their baseline. So even if that person has a very stressful job in home life, their body's baseline stress levels become that and they're able to tolerate training. It's just going to be an, you know, maybe their starting point is a little bit less and over time you can kind of build it up. But even that is nonlinear. There are going to be times where people can handle more stress. There's going to be times where they can handle less. There's going to be time where more is appropriate and there's going to be time when less is appropriate. This is understanding that there's uncertainty and that there's a nonlinear component to this aspect of training. Um, you know, I think this, you know, I, I think in, in many cases we're always, when I discuss, let, let me use this as an example. When I discuss the nonlinearity of training with my lifters, they'll all nod their head and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's nonlinear, I get it. But the second they have a down performance day, they don't get it. They're mad at me. Not not really mad at me. I'm kind of joking around there. But they get frustrated and they get upset. Um, and I do think getting upset every time that there's a down training day is low training skill. And we discuss that. And, you know, we talk about how these things are inevitable. And that's just kind of how it works. And, and just keep training. And there will always be an upward trend in the long run. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. I think we always get caught in this microscopic view of things but interestingly enough right we'll go into the gym and we have an incredibly hard time of living in the moment right so not using what happened last week to try to dictate decisions that we're making for what's going to go on the bar today and not making well I want to hit this next week so I need to hit this today not letting that influence decisions we have this inability to live in the moment when we're actually making training decisions but then we have this inability to see training as a whole when those training decisions don't go the way that we expected them to go so you know you might come into the gym and you know I've had this happen a few times with lifters where they hit an all-time PR but they hit it for two right and then they come in with these expectations that you know, oh, I should have 10, 15, 20 pounds more than that on that bar on this given day for a single, but they might not even, uh, but they might not even get a, so they might, they come in and they might not even hit what they hit for a double for a single on that given day, or they might only hit five pounds more. They might just hit what they doubled last week as a single today. But macroscopically, when they look at it, that double was a 10 or 15 pound all-time PR that they hit for two. And you know, three months earlier, they may have hit another 10 pound PR. And in the last six months, they've put 25, 30 pounds on the lifts. But you know, it's hard to see when you just relish in that in that one moment. And it's it's just an interesting psychological peace to me that we have an inability to live in the moment when we need to live in the moment and we have an inability to see the macroscopic view of things when we need to see that larger picture at times. 
Um, so, I think we we always want to we always want to have answers to these things too, right? And I think what you know with guiding the complexity of it and like one of the and you know I've been there and I've talked about this a lot that you know there are down performance days that we see in the gym and if it goes on for a week or two I tend to intervene and make an adjustment and I think most most coaches do this and I you know I've always thought that this was good advice but when I've stepped back from a macro you know and viewed it from a larger scale that macroscopic view I've thought more about these down performance days they're inevitable right and as a coach we're trying to look at them find a trend of when it's not noise when it's a signal that things are going in the opposite direction and we want to intervene now I'm not sure that this is the actual best route to take anymore um, if complex systems, if biological complex systems follow this power law relationship, if we intervene and we turn things around at this given point in time, there are going to be consequences in the future that are unforeseen. We absolutely cannot predict, but this relationship is going to hold true. So even if we stop a large avalanche from occurring at this given time, let's say in the wrong direction that we want, and we intervene and we get a a small increase, right? We've now changed that what naturally was probably occurring, which might be just like the human body self-organizing and trying to calibrate. We may need down days with the up days and down periods of time for up periods of time. There may even be a proportionate relationship to the size of a trough compared with the size of its peak. Um, I would be apt to say that the larger the trough, the higher the peak. And I've seen this with a few of my lifters who have got stuck for a long period of time on a given lift or on their totals. And all of a sudden, when they come out of that that long-standing trough, there are huge PRs on the other side, ones that you wouldn't even expect from people with, with these training ages. Um, so this just may be a natural biological process. And what we may be doing if we're intervening and we're stopping that large trough from happening, we create a small one and we might get a small increase in lifts. Um, and that just may be due to changing the expectations and beliefs of you know, the individual, changing it up, stopping boredom and monotony or whatever it may be. And they see this increase um, and they see this increase in performance. But the problem that may arise from this is later on down the road, that trough is probably going to come. It's inevitable. Um, we just may be pushing it off. And the timing of pushing it off may be working against us. Um, you know, I... I remember Shaco talking about how his lifters would compete frequently, but there would only be one to two meets a year that they were truly peak for. And if they were competing four to six times, the ones outside of those one to two, their totals would be far less than what they used to be, than what they were at their at their meets that they're really like peaking for. And I'm talking some of them are over 100 kilos less on their totals. And I think this is just an understanding that you know, if you consistently intervene during these troughs, you're gonna run into some. You're gonna run into some problems. Um, but if you allow things to just kind of play out in the background 
for a period of time and then you intervene at the right times for those one to two meets, you're probably going to be a little bit more okay for continued for continued uh, success. And, you know, I, I've heard Louis Simmons talk about, you know, his lifters only competing one to two times a year. Like the same thing. So some of these coaches that have been doing it a long time have noticed these trends. And, you know, I think their explanations for them are incomplete. I think in a lot of cases it's your body can't handle peaking for two meets uh, for more than one to two meets. And I don't think that's the case. I think the body can handle it. I think it's the... The, our understanding of complex systems and how complex systems work within their own environment and with a much larger environment is far beyond our understanding. And for some reason, and we don't know why, it follows this certain power law relationship, which in my head, it makes sense to me that it might be this calibration process. And in order to properly calibrate it with all of the information that the body is taking in, um, you know, from top down as well as bottom up feedback, that there's going to be left and right sliding until it kind of figures out on which spot it needs to settle. And when it settles, we have a new, um, a new stasis point, a new, you know, fixed point that we need to kind of build up to that critical state again to have another phase transition. But once we build it up to that critical state, we do not know which way it's going to go. Right. So there are times that we build it up to that critical state and we see large increases in performance, small increases in performance, no increase in performance. And sometimes it goes in the other direction. Sometimes we see decreases in performance. Um, so there's no way to possibly know. And if the same inputs lead to those random outputs that just follow that proportionate relationship, there's... There's nothing that we can do. So I think in a lot of cases when coaches intervene, it may be inappropriate. It may just be setting up the lifter for a long-term period of no success. Um, so for some of the lifters that I I had in April, so we had a lot of total PRs in April, and some of them were huge. Um, and what I'm noticing is, and this was 100% expected, um, is that a lot of them weren't having obviously the same rates of success, even though we're doing different things and, you know, we're making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis based off of our conversations, how they feel in those things. And it's not like they're not improving. They are. We're just seeing smaller increases. Um, and I think in part, it's you're not going to have two huge meets with huge increases like that in a row very often. There's a couple people who are about to have that happen, but my estimation is, is after this one, it may be best to take a longer break in between uh, meets and just kind of see how things play out in the background because there may be a prolonged period of stasis where you're just not seeing much improvements and you know at the right times we'll bring in some stuff and see if we can uh we can turn those around but it may just be more appropriate to let those things play out um so you know it's not a matter of trying to understand these complex pieces and i think that's the biggest mistake and I'll even say I was making this mistake, even though I talk about understanding and uncertainty and embracing the uncertainty, and I think I'm better than most um, with doing that. And what it does is it does really open up your ability to be creative. Um, you know, you got to obviously keep certain general principles in the back of your mind, but, you know, numbers without context are nothing more than just arbitrary units. So how I view those 
those numbers is probably different from another coach, which is different from another coach. And, and that's, that's why this stuff is fun. Um, so in terms of, you know, to bring it back full circle in terms of trying to understand what an attractor state is, it's not, it's, it's not something that we even understand. So in the world of physics, attractor states aren't, nobody understands what they are. There's certain equations that seem to fit um, certain properties of the world and these lead to different types of attractor states. But why they do that or, you know, trying to understand them is far beyond our understanding. It's far beyond the understanding, like I said before, of physicists with PhDs in this field. Um, and it's sure as shit going to be well beyond the understanding of powerlifting coaches and how these things apply. So I think the idea with attractor states is just understand that there's, you know, I hate using the word trend because I, as humans, we like to see trends. It helps us ignore uncertainty. And I think you see this in almost every single coach that, um, coaches, right? No matter what the sport, I'm not just saying powerlifting, but, you know, we try to find these trends and these things that we just don't understand. And there's going to be a ton of noise in your data. And for every person it works, it's probably going to be somebody it doesn't work for. And I understand the argument that you need to do the best you can. Um, you know, it's, these are the best options that we have and so on and so forth. But if it works 80% of the time only, and there's 20% of the time it doesn't work, um, I, I don't know if I'm happy with that. So I tend to, you know, make my programs far more simple. And I think the more simple it can be, the less, you know, the more simple that it is, the less noise that there tends to be in the, um, in the data pool. I mean, I, I, could, I could be totally off here too, but I also think that, you know, when we're trying to view what works and what doesn't work, it may be working. Like I've said before, strength may just build in the background like a storm and then eventually just kind of unleash itself onto the scene. And I think that's what you see with earthquakes, right? All that stress just builds up under, underneath the surface and it finally comes to fruition. Whether it's small on the Richter scale, moderate or large, um, that stress buildup leads to it and there's no differences between what creates a small, medium or large one, but that's what you see, right? Um, so you train hard, you might have a five pound PR this time. And this is why I think training needs to constantly change and stuff too. There's just, you know, th that those initial conditions are constantly changing and it's just changing the environment and being able to initiate some different changes in there can change some of those, you know, like if you're just, if you're throwing those constraints into a computer model and seeing how things play out, I think in a lot of cases it's random, but it's inevitable that you're going to see progress. And I think even when we see progress, we want to just base it off of, oh, my way is the best way type of thing when it's probably inevitable anyways. And at the end of the day, long-term trajectories might be the same no matter what you do. Like if that power law relationship is inevitable, I think, you know, I think, I, I think coaching plays a, plays a role in long-term success and stuff. Don't get me wrong. And I think there are coaches that are better than other ones and stuff. But, um, 
I think it's just a matter of you know the actual coaching process like dealing with the actual human being their expectations their beliefs treating them like a human like I think those components of it are what keeps them in the game long term keeps them wanting to train hard um, and the things that we know that kind of yield that type of uh, that type of success uh, so I think you know as coaches we need to just to bring things full circle here stop trying to understand the complexity there are people who do this for a living that don't understand the complexity of biological systems in fact i think most people kind of gave up on trying to answer the question where human life came from i think it is you know biology is one of the more complex things we have on this earth to try to understand um so when it comes to attractor states, understand that these are extremely complex math problems that the best mathematicians and physicists in the world do not understand. So there's no way that we can understand them. And what they actually are within the actual organism, um, I'm not sure. Because my guess is that even the, the researchers and coaches that are deep in the dynamic systems theory piece, I think they use attractors to show that there's chaotic and complex behavior because attractors are a mathematical piece of a chaotic system so it just brings that to light they try to keep you know they'll talk about the human being an open complex system you know so just like other open complex systems in the environment so that there's just some connection between the two because it was adopted for skill acquisition so the terms that we use may be, you know, it may be appropriate, but by definition, when you try to put a definition on what an attractor state is, it's a mathematical model that's far outside any one of our understanding. Um, and I think it just, it gets latched onto because like I was saying before, I think people view it as, oh, well, if this is their attractor state, if I manipulate the task in the right environment uh, for that individual you know, that's right at that given time for that individual that I should be able to adjust this attractor state to another attractor state. And that's not necessarily how it works. It's not that linear. You know, it, it's, it's humans trying to find trends and they put this linear piece into a nonlinear model. And that implies that it's linear. And it just may be that all of, all of these variables you know, affect orbit of certain points within the actual ecosystem, but, you know, how strong that gravitational pull is of those points and where they can pull it to, and and there's multiple attractor states within the human body itself, so how one, one orbit would affect another, would affect another, and then if you manipulate one of them in one way, how does that pull all the other ones? Like, it's extremely complex, so... At the end of the day, understand that there has to be down performance in order to have up performance. This is a legitimate piece of all biological complex systems. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen in your training. You need to accept it. Um, sometimes you need to accept that it's best to let these downward trends run for a longer period of time. This should be far out from a competition. If you have an important competition coming up, it may be best to intervene, get something to turn that trend around, get the best out of your training at that possible time that you can for that major competition, but then maybe take a longer period of time to allow the system to kind of readjust and play out. I, I, I do think that that's important. Um, 
But if it's not a major competition, it may be best to just run things out, understand that you're trying to enhance a a skill of competing. And if you're competing three, four, five times a year, I think that's great. But I think you should do it understanding that you should probably take some down performance in certain competitions throughout the year. And I don't think it's a matter of being safe or your body can't handle it or any of those things. I 100% think that the body can handle 100% effort that many times in a given calendar year. However, I just, the way that the math works is the chances of you having up performances and all of those is very small and probably not in your best long-term interest due to just how that power law relationship and the math actually works out. Um, You know, I'm sure... At this point, nobody even knows what I'm talking about if anybody is still listening to (laughs) any of this stuff, but it's extremely complex. Take the good with the bad, and I think at the end of the day, what you need to do is you need to, you know, have fun with what you're doing um, and understand why you're doing it because otherwise this is going to be a very frustrating sport because you can't run away from, from the down performance stuff. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, like with field sports, you just don't notice it as much because there's a team dynamic. Um, where an individual sport with such objective measures is a lot more difficult, I think, for people to rationalize the ups and downs. Um, and I think we always just view the downs as negative, but we have this saying in our gym, it's not good or bad. There is no good or bad, there just is. So, you know... I think really understanding that that's how complex systems work and you have to take the good with the bad and just keep training hard, having fun. And at some point you're going to see an increase in performance. Um, One of my lifters who's in Germany had told me that one of his training partners went to Japan and Kudama, the 74 benches about 500 pounds, um, had said that, you know, sometimes in training you're going to get stuck and sometimes in training you're going to get stuck for years. Just keep training and keep having fun. And that's the part that, to me, is extremely important. Um, Because at the end of the day, it's going to turn around at some point. (coughs) But we don't know when and we don't know how much the turnaround is going to be. And you may even see, you know, if you have a deep trough... Like for me, I haven't hit a PR in over a year. I'm in a deep trough. But I truly believe that what I'm saying is that the math is is correct and that I'm going to come out of that trough and maybe I see a prolonged period of success. So before I got into this deep trough, I had three years of continued progress. I, I literally went every meet in my lifting, we'll call it a career, in my lifting career of seeing progress. This was inevitable. This had to happen at some point. It's the system readjusting itself. So I'll just keep training. I'll keep having fun. And hopefully we get another long-term peak on the other end. Um, for now, you can follow. I, I write about this stuff occasionally on on the internet. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, KWCAN, our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston. Boston.